March is Women's History Month, and to celebrate, Ease is putting a spotlight on female entrepreneurs. I like to indulge in a little bit of self-care, especially when I can support women-owned companies at the same time. Ease makes that easy. Enjoy a restful night's sleep with Lemon Dream Sleep Tonic from Mad Lily, or maybe some peach tea and honey-flavored sleep gummies from Dreamt. Or you can enjoy a bath with Lavender Epsom Salt Mineral Soak from Ohm Edibles. Get 30% off of your first order if you use the code DARLING30 at ease.com if you're over the age of 21 in the state of California. That's DARLING30 for 30% off at eaze.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Hot Pizza Ass Podcast. On today's show, we are going to talk to Angela Gorell, who joins the podcast because she wrote a book called The Gravity of Joy, all about experiencing unspeakable personal tragedy while teaching about joy at Yale. We talk about grief, joy, healing, and forgiveness, and it's a very special episode because this book found me at exactly the right time, and I'm hoping if you're listening to this episode of the podcast, that there's something in here for you, especially if you are going through a difficult time with grief or loss or sadness. Without further ado, here's Angela Gorell. I was introduced to your work and your book, The Gravity of Joy, um, by a friend and fellow podcaster um, from Good is in the Details. Yeah. And, um, you know, Gwen basically suggested this book to me and I downloaded it on Audible. And the next week I lost my dog and a family member. I was actually listening to your audiobook as I was driving my dog to the vet. Mm. And at the time I didn't know that he was going through heart failure. Mm. Um, but it's just so crazy that it was recommended to me like right at the right time mm -hmm. when I needed it. And I thought that was just so kismet. And I was like, I just, I should really have her on this podcast <laughs> and, oh. and let her know and talk to her about this book and your experience, because it is really hard to talk about grief and joy and how they're related and mm -hmm. how difficult it can be. So for anyone in the audience that's listening, that isn't familiar with Angela's work or her book, um, Angela, can you give us a little bit of a backstory basically about, you know, you're teaching joy at Yale and going through a time in your life where it must've been so difficult to even process joy. Mm -hmm. Can mm -hmm. you give us the backstory? Yeah. So for a living, I am a researcher and professor. So, um, about, so a little over five years ago, five and a half years ago now, or I guess almost six, um, I was hired at Yale and, um, and I was living in LA at the time. And I love Los Angeles. I lived there for 13 years. It was my home. Um, but I was recruited to this job at, at Yale. And so I ended up going there to teach and joined a research project studying joy and also visions of the good life in contemporary culture. Like how do, th how do people today think about what a good life is and how do they come to their conclusions about that, that question? Like what is a life worth living? Um, and so that was my job was to study these things, to research them and to write about them, and then to teach a class for undergraduates at Yale called Life Worth Living, where I helped them to ask and answer some of the most important questions of our lives. So together we were trying to seek to answer questions like, what does it mean to lead our lives well? Like, how should we live? What should we hope for? Um, how do we think about suffering? Um, and so it was while I was teaching this class, Life Worth Living, and working on like trying to understand joy more deeply that eight months into working at Yale, I had a series of like just super tragic events happen back to back to back in my family. And the first was that uh, one of my family members died by suicide at 30 years old. And it was just this moment of total disorientation where one second you're you know just playing with i was hanging out with teenagers and we were like doing christmas carols and games and stuff 
and I was just volunteering, hanging out with youth. And one second, I'm just like having fun and eating Christmas cookies and drinking hot chocolate and laughing. And the next second, I'm finding out that my family member, one of my family members took his own life. And it was just um, absolutely before that moment, nothing had ever devastated me quite like that moment did. It was just such a visceral response of like immediate weeping, immediate, no, like this can't be true. Um, and that next week was pure hell for my family. Just every single day, um, just wrecked us. It was all, every day was like harder, the hardest thing that we'd ever done, like planning his funeral, going to the site, like, um, being at his funeral, just everything about it was so difficult. And I got back to Yale and I remember to New Haven where I was living, that's where Yale is in Connecticut. And just thought, like, I don't know how my family is going to recover from this. And then two weeks later, got a call that my nephew had died suddenly from cardiac arrest at 22. He had an unpre like we did, he had a heart condition that we didn't know about. And so my older sister, I like find myself flying to New Mexico to be with her and sitting with my other sisters and just trying to make sense of this senseless death of this young person in our family and um, just horrible. Like we basically sat at Steph's kitchen counter for three nights straight, um, didn't hardly sleep at all, but just trying to comfort her, be with her, share space with her. Like I talk about it as like sitting Shiva in my book um, and then got back to back to New Haven. And I remember on a Sunday and I was just like, man, I don't, the last three weeks have been horrible. I don't know how we're going to get through this, how we're going to heal from this. And two nights later, got a message that my dad was in the ER at a hospital in Kentucky fighting for his life. I was told the next day that if I wanted to see him alive, I needed to come as quickly as possible. Um, found myself on three planes in a rental car, taking a very long journey from New Haven to Appalachia to try to be with him. And um, I was fortunate enough to spend the last five hours of my dad's life with him. Um, but obviously just incredibly, it's one of those like paradoxical experiences in life where it's like so holy, so sacred, so beautiful um, to be with someone when they're dying and to have that like honor of just sharing, you know, seeing them before they die. But at the same time to watch your parent die in front of you is just gut wrenching, you know? So um, I spoke at all three funerals, um, and came back to New Haven, um, wore the same black dress to all three. I talk about that in my book and how I just come back to New Haven and I'm like, okay, it's my job to study joy and to teach a class called Life Worth Living. And I've just buried three people that I love and I don't even know like where to start, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, when you were going through all of this and teaching, how much did your students know about what you were going through? Or did you make the decision to kind of not include them in what you were going through in your personal life? Um, I, so I didn't know exactly what I was going to do initially, but it came out pretty quickly. I, I think at first on the first day of class, I said nothing about what I had gone through. So I do say in the book, like that I'm, I'm thinking as I'm teaching them and introducing the class to them, I'm thinking about, um, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. But my dad actually, like I, I, we'd had the two deaths right before I taught my first class, but then like my dad would died the day after I introduced the class for the first time. So then I'm gone for the next couple classes and my colleague like co covers for me. And so the next time I see them is a week after my dad has died and we're at a retreat together. So Life Worth Living at the heart of this retreat is really trying to help students to connect with each other and to form a community so that we can have honest conversation about these really important conversation uh, questions. So we go on this retreat together. It's just a day long retreat. And um, one of the questions that we ask is on this retreat is like, what is, what's one experience in your life which has really shaped your vision of like what makes life worth living? And so we're going around and it's just impossible for me at that point, not just, I just found myself feeling like I just need to be honest with these students and, and tell them like what happened to me in the last four weeks because I just, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm at the end of myself and I just need them to know 
like this is where I'm coming from and um, I'm going to do my best, but like I'm a human, you know, I'm, a, I'm your professor, but like I'm a deeply human person and I'm going through a hard time. And then the gift of this, Aaron, like what was so cool is that the moment I shared, it was like the floodgate broke. It was like, and then all of a sudden, every person in the room had, I think, was felt like they were given permission to really go to a deep place and to talk about the real, real stuff. Like what has shaped you? What get made you who you are? How did you get here? What makes you, like, why are you in this class? And people shared really, really vulnerably and really honestly. And then it became like, then it was like, we left the, like we came into the room like somewhat strangers and we left that retreat like a community. And then to this day, it's one of the like most powerful like class communities that I've ever been a part of um, in my eight and a half years of teaching um, in the academy. So it's like that just that class will always have a special place in my heart. Yeah, I was going to say that must have been really, really beautiful and rewarding for the students um, to go through with you alongside you and to get to know you in that personal way, because, you know, at my college, I can't think of any professors that I knew personally like that. Um, of course, like being an actor, like in acting and more like creative um, fields, you kind of get mm -hmm. to know your instructors a little bit differently um, because that type of vulnerability is encouraged, but in academia, traditionally, it's not. And I think that that must have been a really, really cool experience for them. And I'm sure like for you as well, it's really, really beautiful to, to be that honest about something that you're going through that could be so incredibly stressful and, and challenging. What did you learn about your relationship with joy when you're going through so much grief? Yeah. So, and just, I do want to come to that question again, but I also wanted to say something about something you just said, which I think is that what it taught me, like being in that room with those students on that retreat, and then just seeing what unfolded that semester was, oh, I can bring myself into this experience and my life teaches mm -hmm. and the lives of our peers around this circle, like they teach as well. And so now it's a very common thing for me to tell students that we're not just learning from the people that we're reading this semester, um, but there are other textbooks that we're reading and that's like the lives of the people in this room. <laughs> and so I think it's about like, there were two things with this that I, I've like carried with me. And one is that we can learn a lot if we learn to read the lives of the people around us. Um, it, they are more like the, the genre is poetry, though. So we can't just, you know, cut and paste or anything like that. But we can learn a lot if we listen to the lives of the people around us. Um, and the other thing that I learned is like when we are um, when we are vulnerable and when we give ourselves permission to be open and to be honest, we give other people permission to be open and honest and vulnerable. Um, and we don't usually realize that we need that permission until someone gives it, give it, gives it to us, you know? Um, the other thing that I'll, so the thing I'll say about joy, I mean, there's lots to say uh, about joy amid suffering. I mean, my whole book is literally about that. Like, what is joy? How does it show up in suffering? How is that possible? Um, but what happened for me was that not only the Life Worth Living class was a really powerful, like, first step toward thinking about joy in suffering. But really, it was a year and a half after my dad died, I heard that there was a women's prison um, that my church was was going to, and they needed more people to volunteer to go to this women's prison and hang out with women on Wednesday nights. And I, similar to when I started teaching Life Worth Living, still felt a year and five months after my dad's death, after these four weeks of hell, I really felt empty. I didn't feel like I had a lot to give anybody, but I felt this stirring in my spirit that I was supposed to go and do this thing. And so if there's someone listening here that feels like you're at the end of yourself, you feel empty, you feel like you're really, really struggling, sometimes it's in taking a step toward other people and actually in serving other people and like, or like, and just like creating relationship with other people that sometimes like brings us back to ourselves. So I really found, like, I found myself in this prison hanging out with these women and 
I thought it was my job to go and like serve them. But what I found was like in hanging out with them that they helped me to find myself, um, to re rediscover my faith in new ways, to rediscover, like to let go of shame, to be honest about uh, my grief, my anger, my fear, um, to like really participate in my own healing, all this sort of stuff. Um, and so, but it was in this room that I began to see the power of joy. And joy, as my friend Willie Jennings says, he says, joy is a work of resistance against despair. And it was in this room that I began to rub up against that idea and really realize, okay, wow, that is what joy does. Like joy actually resists the thing, the voices in our heads that says like, all is lost. Nothing can be redeemed. Not you, you know, you failed massively and you can't recover. You've lost yourself and you're never going to be found again. Um, the world is not good. The world is not beautiful. You're going to be lonely forever. All those voices were quieted. Like that's the roots of despair. Despair is like this parasite that feeds off of our pain, which is like self-doubt and fear and anger and all these things. But like, as I sat with these women, I realized joy is the opposite of despair. Like a lot of people think that hope is the ultimate opposite of despair, but really joy is because hope as like one of my, uh, there's a theologian, like uh, his name's Jürgen Moltmann, a professor in Germany. Moltmann says that hope is the anticipation of joy. So ultimately joy is the, the ultimate opposite of despair. And so joy has this incredible ability that when we experience it, when we feel it, it's, it's impossible to feel despair and joy at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, and what's so cool about joy, what I realized was that while it's impossible to feel despair at the same time as joy, it's not impossible to be sad or to, to experience sorrow and joy at the same time. Like joy has this mysterious way of being able to be like intermingled in our hearts with sorrow. It can stand next to sorrow and still live because joy is not naive. So on the one hand, I'm saying that joy counters despair. It's the opposite of despair. It can't share, like joy and despair can't share the same air because joy takes it away, you know, it takes away all the air for despair. But joy can share space with sorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how in your book, how you talk about joy being like this very old, word, right? It's different than happiness, mm -hmm. um, but happiness is the colloquial cultural word that we use now to describe, you know, being happy. And, um, and I liked that comparison because it, it is like joy does kind of seem like a very, like you hear it in Christmas songs, like old timey Christmas mm -hmm. songs. Yeah. And how often do we actually think about joy in the comparison? And if it's different from happiness at all, what do you think the difference is? Yeah, I think that joy is a much more profound emotion than happiness. I think it has more complexity, it's richer, and it can take a lot more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Joy has a much higher tolerance for life than happiness does. Um, so happiness is an evaluation of our circumstances, which is totally like, I wish everyone listening happiness. I want you to be happy for the record. I hope that you look around at the conditions, the circumstances of your life, and you think, I'm really happy. I'm happy with how my life is going. The thing is, is that we can't always feel that way, you know? So I, my hope is for all of us is that like there's more to life than just happiness because not all of us have control over our circumstances. Not all, you know, we're given different circumstances in life and we just have to live with them. You know, if we can't, we can't always change our circumstances. So then is there more to life than just happiness? Um, yes. And I want to say, yes, there is. Um, joy is if, if, if happiness is like the assessment of our evaluation of, of circumstances around us and like really give, it's about pleasure and feeling good about our circumstances. Joy is pleasure plus meaning. Mm -hmm. Joy is, it feels good, but it's something deeper that's going on there. So joy is generally for me, like I think that joy is the recognition of meaning, truth, goodness, beauty, and our relationship with other people. 
And so it is being able to realize these deeper things that are going on in life. And so another way that I put it in the book is like joy is an illumination. It's the ability to see beyond to the something more. So whereas happiness is about like literally what you can see around you and whether you feel good about it or not, and it gives you pleasure, joy is about those deeper things that are going on in life around us, the intangible things, the things between you and I, the sort of the more that meets the eye thing. It's the stuff that's worth living for, that's worth getting out of bed for, that says, oh, wow, there's more going on here than I first imagined. It's like purpose plus gratitude for life equals yeah. joy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it's wrapped up in that. Absolutely. Yes, um, it is. It's the, the feeling that you get when you're living with purpose, when you sense that there's like a greater story being told and you're participating in it. Mm. It is this very, um, and that's why joy is like has multiple dimensions. Whereas I would say that happiness is a pretty like flat emotion. Like I would say that joy is, that's what I mean by a richness and complexity is like there's healing joy, exuberant joy, there's sobering joy, quiet joy. You know, there's all these different kinds of joy. And so that's why if you're listening today, no matter what your circumstances are, the good news for you is that joy can always, always find you. I love that. Yeah. I like that a lot. I also love the segment where you talk about how happiness is kind of like a superficial emotion in the eyes of the world, happiness or joy or positivity. Like sometimes we even get judged for being happy or for showing happiness. Um, mm -hmm. it's somehow frivolous. Um, why do you think that is? There's, I think there's like a couple layers to what you're saying. And I think one, because I distinguish happiness and joy, mm -hmm. I'll distinguish like joyfulness from happiness. But one, I think because happiness really is about the, the, the evaluation of our like circumstances in our life, because happiness generally means our lives are going well. I think we just live in a day and age where when you see on social media that someone else's life is going well and they're really happy, we tend to get jealous of one another. <laughs> um, and there's this sort of sense that like other people's happiness is a judgment on our lives. So instead of looking at other people and saying, oh, I want to share in your happiness with you, I'm glad too that you have good circumstances. Instead, we can have a tendency to go, why don't I have those circumstances? Why am I not that happy? Why don't I have the good relationship? Why am I not traveling? Why don't I have a good job? Why don't I have a more beautiful house? You know, And so I think that we all, I think a lot of us could spend some time. I mean, it would be good for us to spend some time asking when someone else is happy, happy, why do I think that that's like an indictment on me and my life? Like, why can't I just let that person be happy and actually wonder, you know, why can't I ask myself, what does it look like to share in their happiness? Um, mm -hmm. And then, so I just think that oftentimes, you know, that's what's happening though, is that we see somebody else being happy and we just, it makes us think about our own life and whether we're as happy as they are. And we get into this comparison game with other people. Um, whereas joy, I think it's interesting, joy, uh, joyfulness is a characteristic that some people have. Like mm -hmm. some people, you know, so I would say that joy like has different, there's like the feeling of joy, which I think is a gift that like um, anyone can experience at different times. Like joy can always find you. It's a feeling or emotion that can be like, that can find you. Um, but I do think that there are particular people that are joyful. Like they have this character, like they're born just kind of more joyful people because of the brains that they're given, um, you know, so they have this capacity for joyfulness that not everyone has. Um, and it's my hope that we look at people like that. And if you're not a particularly joyful person, like if that's not your gift in life, like if, if you were given different gifts that you go, you know what, I need you. I need mm -hmm. you around. We need you in our community. Because everybody, every community needs a few people for whom like joyfulness is their gift, that they're able to look mm -hmm. at what's happened, like they're able to help us to find the meaning, to find the beauty, to find the goodness, to find, you know, to look at what's going well. Um, and so we need, we need joyful people in our communities and we need also to, so I just, I think a lot of this is about realizing we need each other. Mm -hmm. And then it's realizing too, that joy is contagious. It's infectious. Like I can catch it. 
So your joy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we can catch more than COVID. Like that's the good news that I'm sharing <laughs> with you today. It's like, there's more, there's more that we can catch than COVID. Like, but seriously, it's, it's contagious. And so when I see someone else being joyful, it should, it shouldn't like shut down something in me. I think it should open up something in you that says, oh, I can share in that. I can rejoice with you. Mm-hmm. I can participate in that. And I think similarly with happiness, it's like, oh, instead of comparing myself to you, I can join with you. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Yeah. I was thinking about that actually just yesterday, something that you said about how I feel like every, this is one of the most important things I've learned in my life. Cause I think that we oftentimes like to surround ourselves with like-minded people, um, because it feels good and it can be very validating in echo chamber type of way. But I think one of the most important things about life and about friendship is that every ray of light needs a storm cloud and vice versa. If not for anything, just to, you know, like you said, because like sometimes the, the storm cloud needs the ray of light more than the ray of light would ever know. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just good to have someone else's POV, their perspective, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like if nothing else than just to laugh at how differently these two people can see the world. I feel like some of my most fulfilling friendships partnerships have been with people who've seen the world very fundamentally different than I do. And I think that there's something really, really cool about that, that we need to, I think we're just in such a divisive mode right now, just in general, Mm -hmm. that the more we try to include people that maybe see the world differently into our like normal day to day, I think it'll benefit everybody. (laughs) Yeah, well, absolutely. And then the thing that we realize is that you know, just like when you go, if you go on a hike and there are two different peaks on the hike, mm-hmm. you know, if you only went to one of them, you would get this view of the world around you. But if you go to the other peak, you're going to have a more expansive view of the world around you. And so I think we need the rays of sunshine who help us to remember, like I was saying a moment ago, yes, there is beauty to be found. There is goodness still in the world. You can still feel connected to other people life still has meaning, you know, we also need the storm clouds who remind us like, Hey, like there are hard, like people are going through hard things. Like we need to have empathy. There is suffering. We need to recognize this. There's injustice. We need to stand up for this. You know what I mean? Um, people are hurting, like they need to be like lamented with. And so we need each other. We really do. And, um, and it like, and then it gives us this fuller. And that's the other thing is like when we're in relationship with people who think differently than us, who have different gifts than we do, who see the world differently, like we get a more fuller, beautiful picture of the world around us and how to participate in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I love how you also in the book, you talk about the book of Job and how there doesn't seem to be a reason or an answer from God about why Job had to lose so much in his life. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people desperately want to find meaning when something bad happens to them. Mm-hmm. Um, did you experience that on your healing journey? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, that was our, especially that was our first year after everyone's death. It was kind of like, oh, could we find meaning in the mess? Like, is it possible that, you know, what, like, why did this, you know, happen? Why did that happen? Like, can we string this together? You know, and even to this day, I think some people might want to suggest that, oh, because you wrote this, like, because this happened in your life, then you were able to write this book about joy and suffering, and then you're able to help other people. And it's like, I mean, that could be one way of looking at it. Um, but for me, I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that um, that this needed to happen in my life for me to write this particular, you know, for me to like write a book about joy and suffering. I think that's just how it went down. I think if anything, the last five years have taught me that um, to become more open to wonder, to mystery, to awe, I am okay, more okay than I was five years ago with not knowing why particular things happen. Um, For me, that is the book of Job. The book of Job, the whole point is like, we just don't know why things happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so then uh, I think I lean more into this idea that my friend Willie says, which is like, we can make our pain productive without glorifying or justifying suffering. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not so much about trying to figure out why this thing happened, but focusing on like, what am I going to do in response to what has happened? We can spend a lot of our lives like wondering, like ruminating on why things happened 
Or we can say, okay, this happened. Like, how do I respond? Mm -hmm. How do I like do something meaningful from this? Like, how do I make meaning afterward? You know? And so I think that for me has been more generative in my life. It's been more helpful to me to just focus on what can I, like, how do I make meaning in my life from what I've learned and like how I've grown as a person through all of this? And how do I help other people who are going through similar things? That's the meaning of it for me. But I don't think that like God had these three people die in my life so that I would go do these things. I think it's just like, I don't know why this happened. I think it's just, you know, my dad was struggling with addiction. My family member who died by suicide was struggling with depression. My nephew had a heart condition. Like that's like why they died in four weeks in rapid succession, don't know. Um, I think it's because life is unfair and it's sad sometimes. <laughs> so it's just like, how do we make our pain productive? You know, like how do we, but I also will say that like some people find a lot of comfort in finding something meaningful that comes from like a very difficult experience in their life. But I just encourage you, like if you don't, if you're listening and you've gone through something really difficult and you don't know why, it doesn't mean that you can't make something meaningful. Like you can't do something meaningful next. You don't have to know why the suffering that you've endured has happened to make some, to do something productive about it. And you don't, you're not betraying your grief. You're not justifying or glorifying the suffering that you've experienced in your life just because you decide to do something helpful for other people or meaningful to you in response to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think as we're talking about toxic positivity, just briefly a few minutes ago, I mean, like you say in the book, like, I love how you kind of break down the whole, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like it doesn't have to make you stronger, you know, like it can be, things can be bad. Situations can be heartbreaking and situations can be negative. Um, and I think that's okay. I think that searching always for some sort of meaning in things that don't make sense, I think sometimes can undercut the range of human emotions that we all need to experience sometimes. And it's okay for things to be sad and difficult and hard. Yeah, absolutely. And we can just say that that's what we know about it right now. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and you can say like, maybe when I'm 70, I'll think differently about this or, you know, but today, like, I don't know why this happened. And I don't, and all I can say about it is this is a very hard thing. This is a very sad thing, you know, and it's okay when someone brings their suffering to us, like when someone shares that they're in pain, when their dog has just died, their beloved pet has just died, you know, family member, when they lost a family member that they love, when like they're going through something really, really painful, it is okay to simply be witnesses to their pain and to not try to fix it. And to just say, I'm going to sit with you in this. And you know what you just shared with me? That is so, so sad. And that is so hard. Like, I see that. I get that. I can get why that would break your heart. Yeah. You know, people can be so difficult. Um, like, they don't know how to deal with someone else's grief. Um, and they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do oftentimes. Um, so is that, what is kind of the best advice that you would give someone if they have a loved one that's going through something difficult or a friend? Yeah. Would you say um, to kind of just hold space and. Yeah, I would definitely say there's a few things that I would say. One is, um, just to, just start with acknowledging that what they're going through is really difficult, really sad, really hard, whatever word feels right for the situation. Um, to say to the, and then to say to the, with them, if it's true for you, like I'm mourn with you about this. Like I'm sad with you about this. Like that is, this breaks my heart too. Like I am like, I'm crying with you. And, um, and so sharing in that, like um, with them as much as possible for you. And then if someone has died in their life, I think a really powerful question that we can ask is, what were they like? Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't know the person who died, um, that's a really beautiful thing to ask because it's like, and the thing that's great about it is um, if they had a complicated relationship with that person, because sometimes like someone dies and you're sad, but it's like a very complicated sad because you had a hard relationship with them, you know? And so, but that sort of open-ended question, what were they like? 
allows them to tell you whatever they want to about that person. So it doesn't have to be only a, like a conversation where they're just like talking about all their best qualities. <laughs> they could yeah. also say like, you know what, actually they could be really hard to talk to sometimes or whatever, you know, but, um, but then it just, it's a, a very free question. It's a capacious question. It's roomy enough for everyone's experience. So I, I would ask, what are they like? If you know them um, or know something about them. So like that's not an appropriate question because you know enough about them you could also another like really roomy roomy question is um what are like some memories that have been surfacing like for you in the last few days about them um if you want to share like if you don't want to share them right now i totally understand but if you want to talk about them and some stories that are coming to you I'd love to hear them. And then especially if you know that this person was really special to them and they had a very close, loving relationship, saying like, what, when you, like, what's a story that makes you laugh when you, when you think about them? Like what was something, you know, what, um, in what ways did they make you feel loved and made you feel seen? Like what did they do that made you feel? Because when someone dies that we love, we want to, and even if it's a pet too, right? You can say like, what are some of your happiest memories with your dog, like mm -hmm. with your cat? Like in what ways did they comfort you? How did they make you feel loved in your life? And because when someone got, like, that's part of the grief process, right? Is recognizing there's a loss here. Yeah. And this is what I'm, this is what I'm like letting go of. I mean, this is what I'm going to miss the most. And that's another question. What are you going to miss? You know, and so just giving them permission to share and reflect and tell stories is so, so powerful and helpful. And then um, the other thing that I'll say is just do tangible things for them. Like instead of saying, let me know if you need anything, just so you know, when someone's just had someone die, um, the last thing they're going to do is like think, what do I need? And then list them out. Oh, I bet that Carrie could do that for me. You know, I'm going to go. They're just exhausted and they just, you know, so um, really tangible things. One thing that you can do is two weeks after someone dies, go over to their house and clean their fridge for them. Because usually when someone dies, people bring you a bunch of food and you are like so grateful, but you don't even want to eat because you're so sad. Mm -hmm. And so your food is like your fridge, like a week later, two weeks later, is just filled with all this food you couldn't eat and it needs to be cleaned out. <laughs> so that's a really tangible thing to do. Another really tangible thing to do is to offer to do someone's laundry or to clean their bathroom a week or two after someone really close to them has died. Um, and then what's cool about that is you're doing something that's super practical for them, but you're like spending time you know, actually at their house or like with them. And so then in between what you're doing, like the laundry, for example, or something, that's when you can ask these questions, you know? Um, and then you can kind of see, oh, they're kind of overwhelmed right now. They don't really want to talk a lot. Then you go back to doing the cleaning or doing the laundry. <laughs> these are some of the best suggestions I've ever heard when it comes to helping someone process grief or holding space for them. Seriously, thank you so much. Especially mm -hmm. the questions um, that you suggested. Because I think that one of the biggest fears that we have, and also I think one of the biggest fears of people who are dying is, um, you know, memories, you know, being forgotten. And then mm -hmm. also when you lose someone or an animal friend or a family member, it's also like, you just feel this urge to just like want to record everything. Like you don't yep. want to forget anything. And and um, that's also like so stressful to go through because like you have guilt sometimes about mm -hmm. like, oh, I should have taken more pictures or made more videos or journaled more or whatever, scrapbooked, whatever it is. Like people have these feelings that come up when you're just so freaked out about the memories. Mm -hmm. And I think encouraging people to talk about the memories or to share them is such a beautiful way to support someone in the process when they're losing someone or have lost someone. Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. that so much. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I found it. Yeah. I found it to be really comforting for me. My older sister feels that way. Like she loves when people ask about her son. And that's the thing is that people want to tiptoe around it. Mm -hmm. Like people like do the opposite often, oftentimes they like literally ask you about anything, but this person that you love that died. And you're just like, I just want someone to like ask me something so that I can like tell them all this stuff that's coming to my mind about them and the things that I miss. And, you know, and so Steph's always waiting. Like she loves when people to this day, 
like, hey, tell me about Mason. Tell me about a story about him. Because the thing is that I think we oftentimes feel like it's our responsibility to keep that person alive. Mm-hmm. Like if we don't talk about them, it's as if they they really die. Yeah. So that's the gift that you're giving to other people is that when you ask them about their loved one, you're giving them the opportunity to like let them live on. Like you in know? Coco. Yes. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> remember me (laughs) um that movie is so sad yeah any anyone that is listening that hasn't seen Coco especially if you're grieving um definitely watch that movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah I love that so much um yeah I um it's so interesting the gravity of joy the title itself Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about that did you know that was the title when you wrote the book or did it come to you after yeah no 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 I, I owe that, uh, that title to my friend, Ryan, who worked with me at Yale, he still works at Yale. Mm -hmm. And um, it was hard, it was hard to title this book, because I wanted people to read it really hungry for joy. Like, if you're really hungry for joy, if you want to know more about joy in your life, but you've been going through a lot of shit lately, this book (laughs) is for you, you know, (laughs) but the book, it's important to know, like, the book is sad, because the book but it does the joy comes but i say in the intro for a reason you know like i you're gonna get to chapter five and be like okay when does the joy come (laughs) but i want but i want you to feel like i did like my family did like the women i met in prison did that like okay where is the joy i want you to feel that way so i wanted to give you a sense of how like where i didn't want you to think that just like I woke up one, you know, two days after my dad's death and I was like, oh, I found joy. I'm awesome. You know, it was a journey. It was a process. It was it involved a lot of like a lot of crying and a lot of being angry and therapy and it, you know, and sitting with those women for a year on Wednesday nights, you know, like it there was a lot to my healing journey. And so that's really important for me, for people to know. Um, so, um, but yeah, the gravity of joy. So the title needed to both honor like that the book is about joy. And I, if you're looking and longing for joy in your life, I want you to read this book. But also this is about the weight of joy. Like sobering joy is has a weight to it, mm-hmm. right? So when I say the gravity, but like when you think about joy, uh, gravity, it's so great because it's like the heaviness that kind of, that often like precedes joy. Like joy is often the result of reunion, which means that there was disconnection or restoration, which means there was, um, you know, a brokenness. It's often, joy is often like what is lost being found, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it means something was lost first. So there is a heaviness to joy, um, but then also the weight of it in the sense, uh, I mean, the gravity of it in the sense of like joy is very grounding. And then, um, and so like joy orients us to that, which is most important in life, you know, and then the gravity of joy in the sense that it's contagious and in fact, it's infectious, it pulls you in, like we're attracted to joy, like we want to, you know, when we see somebody else rejoicing, it's hard not to rejoice with them, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, when they're overjoyed. And so it was all of that. And so I was trying to figure out how do we capture this book in a title this was so hard and honestly it was hours of conversation with the marketing director at the publisher and my uh acquisitions editor and everything and then all of a sudden my friend ryan i'm like texting him and my friend matt i'm just like okay what do we title this book like what do you think about this title or this title and ryan's like neither what about the gravity of joy and i was like i texted you know laura and david at my publisher and i was like and they were like yes that's it like, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, but sometimes it's just, it takes some time, but we felt like that really captured the essence, not only of the book, but of joy itself. Yeah. I really like that a lot. Um, I really enjoyed, and I want to talk about this before we um, wrap up, but the women's Bible study in prison, mm-hmm. what you are doing with those women is just so amazing because I mean, they don't have a lot of recreation and probably not that many opportunities, um, to work with other people in venues, um, where they're encouraged to do a lot of, you know, forgiveness work. And Mm -hmm. to me, that was one of the biggest takeaways that I got from that chapter is that they needed to work on forgiving themselves and how hard 
that was for some of them. And I think that everyone in your life path, no matter what you've done or where you come from, has definitely had moments where they have to figure out how to forgive themselves for mm-hmm. things that they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that process like working with them and, and how did you encourage them to get to that point? Mm. Mm. That, um, I've done a lot of interviews about this book. Um, over the last year and no one's ever asked me this question. So (laughs) I'm really, I'm like, this is a great question. It's an important question. Forgiveness. uh, My friend, my, my boss at Yale, who's now my friend Miroslav, um, Miroslav said forgiveness comes in droplets. Um, That's a really important aspect of this. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit at a time. Um, And so for, for these women, for the women who are really praying and hoping for forgiveness, um, a lot of it was related to, um, one, their children. Like any women who had children in the room, that was always a weight that they carried was like my choices um, related to substance use or staying in particular environments and such um, meant that my children like witnessed things that I wish they hadn't witnessed. Mm -hmm. They experienced things I wish they hadn't experienced. There was so much guilt around that of just living with guilt and shame. And so forgiving yourself starts with creating space that says there is no shame here. And you can always, always recover. So recovery from addiction is really at the roots of it is about recovery of self, a sense of self-worth, a sense of dignity, a sense of your own. It's about maximizing your humanness and realizing, you know, you are worthy. You are at the heart of who you are. You are good. You are lovable. You are beautiful, you know, and so forgiveness work started with there's no shame in this space. We get to be honest about the ways that we have failed ourselves and other people. We get to be honest about the mistakes that we wish we could go back and change. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it moved to you are like beautiful and you are good and you are loved. So what does it mean now to live from that place? Because you've been living from a place of thinking that you weren't these things. So what would it look like to leave this prison and to live from a different view of who you are, you know? And so we worked a lot on self-worth and understanding um, that, you know, and then forgiveness, then you move toward like, that's the droplets, right? Then you start talking about, okay, I want to own the ways that I participated in being in this room. Mm -hmm. And then also, though, I want to recognize that there are reasons I'm in this room that I didn't do. Like, I didn't know, I didn't, you know, I like, so the, the vast majority of women in my Bible study, like, grew up in foster care. Mm-hmm. So they grew up in very, very terrible circumstances. So it was like this both of, like, helping them to realize you're, you didn't get to where you are today entirely because you made bad choices. Like, in many ways, life handed you a pretty raw deal. So there's lament in there too, of like, wow, part of this is realizing that just, wow, I was, I really grew up in a system that was really difficult to claw my way out of, you know? Um, And so it's got all these different dimensions to it and it's a little bit at a time. Um, And then eventually I think it's about helping them to realize that once you have owned like the parts that you can own in your story, like instead of seeing that as a bad thing, see it as an empowering thing. You can now see like you have agency, like Amy. It was like, Amy, you have agency in your life. You get to leave this prison and make different choices than you've made in the past. Like, and then also helping them to see, even when you've failed massively, when you've made mistakes that you felt like you can always, always recover yourself and you can always choose a new path it's a new day tomorrow and every single morning god's mercies are new and that's the thing that's the thing when people get stuck in a rut and they just believe like i can never change my life will never like change i can't change my patterns my habits my relationships 
you know, it's about really, really making a change in that and realizing, no, I can't, like I have agency. I am a woman that is like capable and, um, of, of participating in the healing of my life, you know? Yeah. That must be so difficult specifically for people who are in prison because they're literally enclosed in four walls that are there to remind them that they're being punished for something. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's just so much, um, shame just felt in general, just being in that environment that doesn't really do enough to actually rehabilitate people, especially not their spirit. So I think that what you did for them is really, really beautiful. And, um, I'm sure just like a treasured gift, that they'll have moving forward. And um, I hope that they all were able to feel love and forgiveness and enjoy. Thank you for being yeah, a part I, of that. I, yeah, oh, I hope so too. I mean, I think I saw glimpses of it and it was cool. Like once, I mean, it just, they were participating in it too. I and mean, they were cultivating that space of no shame of let's be honest with each other. We can recover. We can, you know, we don't have to live the same like and stuff like that. Um, and or we can get help for our mental health issues we can there was a real we can attitude in there and it was like you know and also the last thing i'll just say though too is that a lot of this is about like forgiveness is about for me like offering it to god like offering this person myself this situation to god and being like you know what i can't forgive this person or i can't forgive myself or i can't forgive the situation but i can give it to you god and i'm like asking you to come and like do something in me and I can participate in your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So you do the work and I'm just going to offer it to you. So it's a lot about surrender too. Mm-hmm. I've just, and, and that's why, and sometimes it takes like giving it away every morning. And so if you're listening today and you're like, oh, there's this thing that I've been carrying around for a long time. Like, I really think it starts with just like surrendering each morning and being like, okay, God, this is yours. Like, I can't carry it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's tough. Um, definitely finding ways to approach it. Um, even if that way is saying I can't do it and I need help and I need to surrender this. Um, I think that's also really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. are you going to write a follow-up? Um, I am writing a new book. I don't know exactly if it's a follow-up, but I mean, I think it's, it's about seeking aliveness. Mm -hmm. It is about that. It's about catalytic moments in our life when we're trying and catalytic experiences when we're trying to figure out what to do next mm-hmm. and we don't know quite what the next step is. So it's about that, those moments in life. So. Great. Well, I can't wait. Um, I will stay tuned to see when that's coming out. And I'm so grateful that you're here on the show today. And I hope that everyone that listens to this is able to glean some gems through this conversation that will help them um, work through grief or, cultivate joy in their lives or forgiveness, whatever it is. And thank you so much, Angela. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been such a fun conversation, a rich conversation, an honest conversation. I love it. (laughs) And um, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for joining Hot Pizza Ass Podcast. Please share this with a friend. And if you would like to support us, go to patreon.com slash Darling, where you can get some bonuses and also support the podcast. You can also support for free by leaving a review on iTunes or like I said before, by sharing this with someone who might need this content right now. Also check out our sponsor ease.com and use the code darling30 for 30% off of your very first order if you're 21 plus in the state of California. I'm Erin Darling-Tralva and I'll see you guys next time.